All right, I am excited about this message series, and uh, that song really kind of encapsulates some of what we're talking about. What, what were you born for? What did God make you, save you to do in, in his kingdom and, and for him? Because Jesus didn't just come to the world to die. I mean, he did, and to save us, but he didn't just save us from sin. He saved us to something. In fact, Ephesians 2, 8 through 10 kind of summarize God's plan in a wonderful way. It says, for it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this not from yourselves. It's a gift from God, not of works so that no one can boast. And so it's through Christ that we're saved. But then it goes on. It says, for we are his workmanship or handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God has prepared in advance for us to do. So God didn't just save us from something, from a life of slavery to sin and brokenness. He saved us to something to change this world. And so last week we talked about how Nehemiah, he had a a curiosity about Jerusalem. And that curiosity developed into this overwhelming passion and brokenness over the, the destitute nature and the precarious situation that his brothers and sisters had in Jerusalem. And he, he decided, you know what, God wants me to rebuild the wall of Jerusalem. And, and so what does God want you to do? So after last Sunday's message, there were two kinds of people that I talked with a one kind of person, they were like all fired up. They were like, yeah, this is what God has called me to do. I know exactly what it is and I need to go after it. And that was such an encouraging, like inspiring message and let's go out and do it. And then the other half of people I talked to were like, yeah, I don't really have a thing. You know, and, and some of it was, you know, I, I, I'm not really good at anything and I'm not sure, you know, some of it was insecurity. Some of it was just just totally... Like, I don't know, I'm not even curious about anything, you know, that involves needs. So what in the world do you look at or do you listen to or do you hear and you say, that is wrong. That shouldn't be. Maybe that's what God wants you to change. And, and, and so I, I put up this list last week. This is not an exhaustive list. In fact, I would love, maybe I'll put a post on Facebook um, and, and you can add your thing underneath it because, because it, can be, it can be anything that God wants to change in other people's lives, right? This is an others perspective kind of thing. How do you wanna impact others? How do you wanna change the world? Save people, serve people. If you're here and you're not a follower of Jesus Christ, that's great, I'm glad you're here. But if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, you need to, he saved you to do something. And, and so one of, maybe it's one of these things that this is, this is an area that God can use me to bring about change. And so Nehemiah, it was rebuilding a wall and whatever it is that God wants you to change and God wants you to work in the good work, uh, the, one of the things you need to do early on is you need to enter the rubble. And we'll see what that means with Nehemiah here in Nehemiah chapter two. Um, actually, I got it on the screen, so I don't even have to look. Starts out. So Nehemiah, he, he has this burden to rebuild the wall. Uh, the people are in disgrace. They're, they're in a precarious position. They're, their enemies uh, are, are just, um, take, can, can very easily take advantage of him. There's in tremendous poverty 
it, it's just not good. And so the first thing Nehemiah does is he prays. He prays for three months. And after three months of prayer, there's an opportunity to talk to the king, and he takes it. And in his conversation with the king, you can tell he's done his homework. He knows who needs to be contacted. He knows what letters need to be written. And, and so the king says yes. He makes a, probably a two-month journey, a thousand miles from where he was in Susa, in the, the capital city of the Persian Empire, or one of the major cities of the Persian Empire, travels a thousand miles. If they traveled 20 miles a day, didn't travel on the Sabbath, would have taken him about 58 days to get to Jerusalem. And so he went to Jerusalem, and after staying there three days, maybe recovering from the trip, kind of getting a lay of the land, getting to know the people that are there, it says, I set out during the night with a few others, um, I had not told anyone what my God had put in my heart to do for Jerusalem. There were no mounts with me except the one I was riding on. And it says, by night I went out through the valley gate toward the jackal well and the dung gate, examining the walls of Jerusalem which had been broken down and its gates which had been destroyed by fire. And as I read this, I, I didn't realize until starting to studying this a, a few months ago when I think of uh, the gates of Jerusalem and the walls of Jerusalem, I tend to think of an old English castle. Okay, but that's not the picture. This is not gates of a castle. This is gates of a city and a wall around a city. It's several miles long and there were 11 gates. So there weren't just one gate or two gates, 11 gates, some of them very creatively named like the Dung Gate. Guess what you transported? Guess what there was a pile of outside the dung gate? You know, they didn't have, yeah, fertilizer, exactly. <laughs> Nitrogen-rich resources. Um, because they didn't, they didn't have like modern sewage, you know, systems. So you had your chamber pot and you had your donkey or, or, or horse or whatever stuff. And this is where you, so anyway, so he's taking a tour and then I moved on toward the fountain gate in the king's pool, but there was not enough room for my mount to get through. And so I went up the valley by night examining the wall. And finally I turned back and re-entered through the valley gate. And the officials didn't know where I had gone or what I was doing because as yet I'd said nothing to the Jews or the priests or the nobles or officials or any of the others who would be doing the work. And there is a reason for that and that is because of the opposition to this plan that he has. See, the problem with these walls being broken down and destroyed over 140 years previously, it was not just a building problem. It was not just a lack of resources. There were actually plenty of rocks there, um, but there really weren't enough people, really not a lot of people, but the problem was beyond the physical nature of things. There was a spiritual and, and, and personal opposition to what Nehemiah wanted to do here. But the first thing you gotta do, whatever God has put on your heart to do, maybe it's, you know, I wanna change the drug epidemic that's in this county. And, and, I, I, and the first thing you need to do is you need to look at the rubble. You need to enter into the rubble and say, how big is the problem? What, what is at the root of it? What, what are the particular, how much of the drug epidemic is alcohol? How much is marijuana? How much is heroin? How much is, what, what is going on? Who are the players? What, where is this taking place? You gotta enter into the rubble. And that, that doesn't mean you just click online. You gotta get out there 
and meet with people, right? And, and be on the scene. And, and that's what Nehemiah is doing here. Enter the rubble. Facing your past and present can be a painful process. It may be part of the rubble. Maybe the rubble is a broken relationships in your life. And it's interesting how so often we want to just restart something. I just want to start over, right? In fact, building projects, we put an addition on to our house. And in doing that, I realized it would have been easier to just build a house. <laughs> it would have been more expensive, but it would have been a whole lot easier than trying to tie a new house into an old house and the old house isn't straight and nothing's flat and and just figuring it out and tying in the roof lines and all that stuff. And so often our modern way of doing things, let's just scrap it and start over. But God often wants us to rebuild, not just redo. You may have relationships and you're just like, you know, I just wanna, I just wanna start over. I just wanna just, just stop that and just start from scratch. But that's often not what God wants. He wants us to enter into the rubble. You know, they couldn't go down to Lowe's and get, or, or a quarry and get more stone easily transported there to rebuild the walls. They had to use what they had, the broken, burned rubble that, that was all around. And, you know, as I think about this, I, I originally pictured the walls, you know, this pile of rubble, moss covered and such. But this happened 140 years before. There wasn't just moss growing on these rocks. There were trees growing up between them probably. And, and when the wall was destroyed, it was actually destroyed three times. Babylon laid siege to Israel, to Jerusalem, at three different times and broke through the walls of Jerusalem three different times in a period of 20 years. And so the last time they did it, they basically said, three strikes, you're out. This is a rebellious city. We, we keep having to come back and conquer it. We're going to destroy these walls in such a way that we never have to, to conquer it again. And so the walls of Hezekiah that, that the Babylonians destroyed were about 20 feet wide, 25 feet high, over three miles in length. And the Babylonians with the tens of thousands of troops, once they breached the city wall, once they came in and conquered Jerusalem, they tore those walls down they said we don't want to do this again and so this is what Nehemiah is looking at 140 year old rubble and uh, whatever your calling is whatever good work whatever workmanship that, that God has made you to do and to be it, it needs to start with taking a good hard look at where you're really at um, I've mentioned this before, but it'll stick with me. I had a friend, Jeff, um, when I lived up in New York, and he was telling me he, he was thinking about his life and what, what he wanted and, and what, what was, was best. And he said, I realized, you know, what I wanted was a godly wife and a godly family. And then he looked at the rubble of his life and realized, I will never get that. Not if I continue to live the way I live. So he stopped going to the bar and he started going to church and he stopped looking at porn and he started reading the Bible and he started changing who he was because he said, a godly woman will never want to marry who I am. And so take, take a cold, hard, realistic look 
at who you are, at who you need to be. You know, looking at that, facing your past and present. And then it's important to not face the rubble alone. And Nehemiah doesn't do that either. He hasn't told anybody what he's going to do yet, but he, he's, he's taken a couple people along with him. Hey, hey, I want to do a field trip. Hey, will you come with me? Will, will, I, I have some questions. Can you answer my questions? Can you, can you do, do this? Um, don't let anyone... You, you know, what, what Nehemiah looked at and found was something, this, he was not, I'm sure, the first person in 140 years to think, we should rebuild the wall, right? I'm sure there's lots of people who had come along with that in mind, but, but Nehemiah here, he, he, he isn't gonna take no for an answer. And so people might, might say to him, and when he got there, hey, I'm here to rebuild the wall, they'd be like, are you kidding me? You have no idea. Have you seen the wall? No, I haven't seen the wall. You're, you, you're, you're ignorant. You don't know what you're doing. So, so he brought others with him and he surveyed the wall so that he would know what he was talking about when he laid out the challenge to other people. Don't face the rubble alone. I set out during the night with a few others, he says in verse 12. And, um, and then he brings what he sees to the, to, to the people and says, hey, this is what God has called me to do. I have permission from the king. Uh, God is in this. Let, let's do it. And that brings us to the second thing you need to understand is going to happen if you are going to try to change the world and if you're going to try to make a difference in other people's lives. And that is that you need to engage the opposition. That is actually the biggest reason the wall wasn't rebuilt. It wasn't a lack of stones. The stones were there. It was really a people problem. There weren't enough people who wanted to do it, and there were too many people who didn't want it done. And so we, we find the opposition in Nehemiah chapter 2, and then also later I'll read some verses in chapter 4. But when Samballot the Horonite, now these, these are weird words, and you don't know who these people are. Let me tell you, Samballot the Horonite, Horonite, however you say his name, he was a very well-connected non-Jewish man. His uh, daughter actually married the grandson of the high priest, Eliashab. In fact, Eliashab was kind of in his pocket, so to speak. Um, and, and it goes on, Tobiah the Ammonite, same thing. Uh, a little bit later, years later, Nehemiah leaves and goes back to the king to do his job as cupbearer. And then he comes back to Jerusalem for a short time. And he finds that Tobiah the Ammonite is in a, a special room in the courtyard of the temple. Well, Ammonites were not allowed to be in the temple courtyard. And this guy's got this spacious room there provided to him by the high priest Eliashab. And so even within the Jewish people, the, the, at the highest ranks, the high priest, they are cooperating with Gentiles who really do not want um, the Jews to do well. You know, and, and as you read the book of Nehemiah, you find that there's this upper class in Jerusalem that are living well and oppressing the rest of their own people the Jews underneath them and these guys are helping with that and they're all getting rich and they're all interconnected and, and this is a problem. 
In fact, when you read things like the Ammonite, and you know, in the Old Testament, Ammonites were not allowed in the courtyard of the, of the temple, and you'd, you'd be like, were they racist? And, and when, when you talk about Jews in the Old Testament, and, and even, even in, many, in many ways today, um, what you're talking about is, is not a racial thing, but a religious thing. So you could become a Jew today, right? You could convert. It's a religious thing. There are some who call themselves Jews and they're actually atheists and so it's just an ethnic thing. But definitely back in this day, it was religious. And so this is not just a, a racial Ammonite. Ruth, right? The book of Ruth is named after her. She was a Moabite, but she became uh, the great grandmother, a great-great-grandmother of King David and in Jesus' lineage. But what happened was she converted to Judaism and she decided to be a Jew. In fact, Judaism today, there's actually, uh, I've read that in America, there are three groups of Jews and, and all, all the Jews in America are about a third, a third, and a third of each. A third of Jews in America today are non-religious they're not, they don't really believe in the Old Testament. Jews call that the Tanakh. Um, I don't know if I'm saying that right, but, but they, they don't believe in anything really, or they're Buddhist or they're, you know, whatever, but they're, they're not Jewish religiously. About a third of the Jews in Israel, in, in America, not in Israel, in America today are religious observing Jews, and there's different kinds. There's the Orthodox, and they wear the, you know, the men wear the caps, and they have the you know, sideburns and all that. And then there's other kinds as well, the Reformed Jews. And so a third are religious. And a third of Jews in America today are called Messianic Jews. What that means is they're believers in Jesus Christ. And they're Christians. But they are, are in some way keeping their Jewish customs and, and laws and things like that, perhaps as an opportunity to witness to their fellow Jews or, or just as an ethnic thing and a family thing. But a third of them would say, yeah, Jesus, and Hebrew word for Jesus is Joshua. Sometimes they pronounce it Yeshua. But Jesus is the Messiah. He's our Messiah. He's the world's Messiah, and we're following him. And so when you read about stuff about, boy, you can't marry a Nehemiah, Nehemiah comes back in chapter 12, and he's pulling guys' beards out. Like, he's, he's really laying down the law, so to speak, because these men had married these foreign women and the problem wasn't they married f people of another race the problem was they were marrying people of another religion and so it's so this is these guys are worshiping ammonite gods and goddesses and they're and 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 they're opposed to the god of israel and their people and then it says jeshem the arab we don't know much about jeshem the arab from the scriptures but he is mentioned two or three times in archaeological finds, and he was the king or the warlord of an, of an Arab nation that stretched from about where modern-day Mecca is all the way to Israel. And so he's a major player as well. They mocked and ridiculed us. What is this you're doing, they asked. Are you rebelling against the king? And, and so this opposition, the, the first tactic they use to try to stop Nehemiah and stop what God wants done is it's an accusation of rebellion. You're, you're anti-American. You're unpatriotic. You're going against the authorities. And, and in this instance, it's interesting how Nehemiah responds because Nehemiah could have said, 
He could have said, that's not true. I'm the cupbearer to the king, and I was there when he issued the decree to rebuild the wall, and I have letters to the local governors, and I have a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the royal parks, which means he's in charge of the lumber, and this is all up above board, and we are not rebelling at all, but that's not what Nehemiah says. He doesn't defend himself by going to the political connectedness that he has. This is what he says. I answer the king by saying, the God of heaven will give us success. He doesn't, he doesn't have the king back him up in his plan. He has God back him up. And he says, this is a God thing. The God of heaven will give us success. We, his servants, will start rebuilding. But as for you, you have no share in Jerusalem or any claim or historic right to it. You need to understand the problem with these guys wasn't that they were Ammonite or wasn't that they were Arab. In the Bible, um, it said that Jews could not marry Ammonites and Moabites and things like that. But it wasn't talking about their ethnicity. It was talking about their religion. And that's why you have a book of the Bible called Ruth. Ruth was a Moabite. And Ruth is a famous, celebrated, godly woman of the Old Testament. Why? Because she changed her Moabite religion of worshiping these Moabite gods and worshiped the God of Israel, the God of the Bible. And, and so that was the problem. These individuals had no interest in God or following his word. And, and that's why, and they, they were opposed to that going forward. And so an accusation of rebellion, if you want to follow Jesus, you need to be prepared for opposition. Um, a couple weeks ago, was able to have Shabu Simon. We weren't able to schedule him on a Sunday morning because he had a lot of churches he needed to visit. But we support, when you give to Bridgewater Church, there are a number of other ministries that we give that money out to. And one of them is uh, the Independent Gospel Baptist Churches of India headed by Shabu and Saju Simon. And Shabu was visiting just a few weeks ago and he's since gone back to India, but an Indian man. And he has gone undercover to visit some of the church plants and some of the pastors in other states of India. He's grown a beard out and, and kind of gone in disguise because actually he was at one church meeting and they said, there are some officials coming, they're on their way, it looks suspicious, and they quickly stopped the meeting and ushered him out a back door so that he could escape. And Shabu has friends of his and fellow pastors who've had their homes and churches burned down. And some of them have even been killed for telling others about Jesus Christ. And there's been stories in India where, where parents send their kids to VBS and all the kids in VBS were arrested and taken into detention because they were learning about Jesus and they're just children. And that's, that's, that's frowned upon. And so these children were separated from their parents for weeks why? Because they were learning about Jesus. And we need to understand that this is normal. Christians are the most persecuted minority in the world today. No one else comes close. Not homosexuals, not Muslims, not Buddhists or Hindus. Christians might come close. Actually, they don't because there's not as many of them. So, but, but Christians persecuted all over. We need to realize that's normal and, and put up with maybe the ridicule 
and, and the negativity that you may get for following Jesus Christ here in America today as well. In fact, we, we posted on our private Montrose Facebook page a pastor in Liberia who was recently kidnapped. Well, actually, he's missing. They don't know what happened. But he helps start churches in a Muslim area in Liberia. And, and there are two individuals in our church who have been there and, and have worked with him and know him personally. And he has disappeared. There has been no ransom note. That is a bad sign. And this is what is happening all over our world today. There is opposition to God's truth and God's salvation and increasingly, this isn't just going to be an over there situation. What God's word says about homosexuality, about evolution, about abortion, about getting high, about transgender, about racism, about marriage, about freedom, about euthanasia, about gender. What God's word says about more and more things will increasingly be seen as un-American. And unpatriotic. And I think it's fitting that we talk about this on the 4th of July. Do I love America? Yes, I do. Do I love Jesus more? Absolutely. And we may be faced with a situation like the apostles in, in Acts where they said, you decide, you judge. Is it more important for us to obey God or man? And we need to be ready for opposition. The first thing was an accusation of rebellion. The second thing was ridicule. When Sembalat, Nehemiah 4, 2 and 3, when Sembalat heard that we were rebuilding the wall, he became angry and was greatly incensed and he ridiculed the Jews and in the presence of his associates and the army of Samaria, these guys got an army. Nehemiah doesn't have an army. But they're ridiculing. He said, what are those feeble Jews doing? Will they restore their wall? Will they offer sacrifices? Will they finish in a day? Can they bring the stones back to life from these heaps of rubble burned as they are? And Tobiah the Ammonite, who was at his side, said, what are they building? Even a fox climbing on it would break down their wall of stones. You can't do it. You look ridiculous. You're just going to fail anyways. You might as well stop now. And save yourself the trouble. Don't let anyone tell you that if you're on a mission to change lives for Jesus Christ and for the Lord. Do you know what my thing is? I don't know what your thing is. You know, whether it's, you know, talk to people about drug, people who are drug addicts and helping them, others about suicide, others about adoption or foster care or all sorts of the elderly and medical things. Do you know what my passion is about? Starting more churches. The more churches you have, the more we can help more people come to know Jesus Christ and then go out into their communities and change and make a difference. And I found that starting more churches means training and raising up more pastors. And you know what? People might say, well, you know what? The church in America, it's, it's on the decline. It's dying. There's nothing you can do to stop it. You're just some guy and rural Montrose and not Montrose, Colorado. Whenever you Google Montrose, it's always the Colorado one comes up. You know, but what is God calling you to do? Don't let anyone tell you you can't. I mean, the truth is you can't. But God can do it through you. And it often takes longer and 
and, and than, than you imagine it will. But God, God can do amazing things. But ridicule, that's an increasing tactic. Christians are stupid. Christians are hypocrites. Christians are patriarchal. Christians are sexist. Christians are racist. Christians are outdated. You're not one of those ignorant anti-science Christians, are you? And we need to just realize that, you know, it doesn't matter what names people call you. In fact, people use names when they don't have good arguments. So, so tell me what I'm doing wrong. Well, you're just stupid. Okay, so tell me. What do you mean by that? In what way am I being stupid? You know, and, you know, there's, there's Christians that are doing this as well. Um, there are churches that don't teach God's word. But there are a lot of churches that do teach God's word, but they're maybe not doing a great job, right? And I, I, I might look at those churches and say, boy, you're not really reaching your community. You're not really discipling people well in obeying God's word. You're learning information about God's word, but you're not really... But you know what? I am not going to attack those churches because there's plenty of other people that are attacking churches and saying they're hypocrites, and, and throwing stones. And we shouldn't join in on that. All right? Because, because God, there, there's enough opposition to what God is doing that we don't need to be a part of that. And I, I find more and more Christians throwing stones at churches. Yeah, cr- churches, they're full of hypocrites. Absolutely. You know, schools are full of hypocrites too. And restaurants, and politicians and government, every, you know, nurses have hypocrites, every, there's hypocrites everywhere. But you know what? Let's, let's engage in what God wants us to do and stop throwing stones. I like what, what someone's trying to do better than, than your criticism of what they're, they're trying to do. Um, ridicule. The third way they, they opposed them is the threat of violence. Um, Verse 7 of chapter 4, But when Sambalat, Tobiah, the Arabs, the Ammonites, and all the people of Ashdod heard the repairs to Jerusalem's walls had gone ahead and the gaps were being closed, they were very angry. They all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and stir up trouble against it. And that is not an idle threat. They had armies. There was the army of Samaria. I don't know which of these dudes had influence there. And then Jeshem, the Arab, had his own army. But we prayed to our God and posted a guard day and night to meet this threat. Meanwhile, the people in Judah said, the strength of the laborers is giving out. There's so much rubble, we can't rebuild the wall. Also, our enemies said, before they know it or see us, we will be right there among them and we'll kill them and put an end to their work. And this brings up to me something that I call the myth of the open door. A lot of Christians believe that if if there's something God wants you to do, it will be easy. God will open the door. And one of the few places in the Bible where the phrase open door is used is in 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verses 8 and 9, where Paul says, I will stay on at Ephesus until Pentecost because a great door for effective work has opened to me. Open door. And there are many who oppose me. 
And in Acts 19, we hear about the situation in Ephesus that Paul said was an open door. There's a, a mob and a riot, and they're looking for Paul. And if they would have found him, they would have literally torn him limb from limb. And Paul says, an open door. <laughs> Look at the opportunity. But Paul, there's hundreds of people that want to kill you. Yeah, but, but what an open door. I tell this to those who get baptized. You get baptized, you need to watch your back. There's often a spiritual attack of Satan shortly afterward. Because if, if you start doing something for God and you start walking through that open door, there will be, like Paul, many who oppose you. And, and they will... Anything worthwhile will stir up opposition. Um, a young man who accepted Christ was told by his parents, in this church, young man in this church, he's told by his parents, how come you don't smoke pot and get drunk and sleep around with girls like a normal teen would do? Why do you have to go to church and read your Bible? Cut it out. Can't you just, th this is the time for you to do these other things. What are you doing? I mean, opposition. If you talk to your friends about giving away 10% of everything you earn, see what they say to that. Oh, I don't think you want to do that. That's for old people. You got kids. You got you to gotta think of college and save for them, and that's for old people. And if you're old, they'll say, oh, no, that's not for old people. You're not fixed income, Social Security. That's for young people. Or that's for rich people. Give away 10% of your money to people in need or to a church or to other ministries or to missionaries or God's work or whatever. You don't do that. You're going to face opposition. You're a chump. You're a sucker. You think they're going to use that money in the right way? Ugh. You're going to face ridicule. Thankfully, we're rarely threatened with violence, but Nehemiah was. Verse 12, then the Jews who lived near them came and told us 10 times over, wherever you turn, they will attack us. In fact, this is what sometimes you get is, basically, they were saying, okay, it's okay for you, Nehemiah, to risk your life, but you're risking our lives. You finish that wall, we don't even live in Jerusalem. We live in these outlying areas, and, and the, I've seen the army. And at any moment, they can come and they can kill us. Nehemiah, you're putting us in jeopardy. You know, it's sometimes in churches, parents have teenage children and they say, we don't want these other teens from the community involved in the youth group. They're dangerous to our kids. They might have our kids start doing bad things. And so you shouldn't let those other kids come into this youth group, be a part of craze or be a part of you. You shouldn't let them because you're, you know, it's one thing to put your child in danger, but you're putting my child in danger. You know what, you know what the answer to that is? Greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world. And we're not called to form a little fortress here and hide out. Are they, are they, are they still out there? We're not called to be monks in a monastery hiding from the world. We're not called to be Amish, separating. We're called to be a light in the world and to go out there and change it and do something. 
What is it that God has called you to do? Stop listening to the fears whispering in your head. Stop listening to the jeers from others who are telling you you can't do it or it's dumb. Listen to the cheers. Hebrews 12 says, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, he's talking about Noah and Abraham and maybe your grandmother and Ruth and Mary the mother of Jesus and and Gideon and Peter and, and the host of heaven. Since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw aside every weight and the sin that so easily entangles us and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despised its shame, and is now sitting at the right hand of the Father. That's what God is calling us to do. Listen to the cheers. Heavenly Father, I just thank you that you're in control. And I just ask that you would help us to not just view the death of Christ, the resurrection of Jesus as a get-out-of-jail-free card, as a, as a fire insurance, but Lord, help us to see it, to see your Holy Spirit as, as giving us the power to not just change our lives, and that's what needs to change first, but to change this world. God, I pray for Montrose. God, I pray for the brokenness in this community. I pray for Springville, for Dimmick, for Halstead, for, for New Milford, for Lemon, for Mahoopany, Mishapin. God, the communities we live in, are so broken. And you're the answer. Help us not to be talked out of it. Help us not to think you're not powerful enough. God, help us trusting you to go out and to change this world. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.